She said, so what's the altitude? I said, it's out of sight. What's with the attitude? And she said, it's all right. So what's the altitude? I said, it's out of sight. What's with the attitude? Good morning, and welcome to episode 390 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I'm Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. We are continuing our our preview series, going from the bottom to the top of the Pakoda projected standings. That takes us to the Rockies today. Uh, later in the show, Nick Wheatley-Schaller will be talking to Troy Rank of the Denver Post. Uh, but right now, we are welcoming in our good friend and yours, Russell Carlton, who wrote the uh, Rockies essay for the annual. Hello, Russell. Welcome back. Howdy. Uh, so there is a, a subgenre of sabermetrics that is devoted specifically to the Rockies and to Coors Field. Uh, and what the effects of Coors Field are, and whether the Rockies can win there, and if so, how. Uh, and you contributed another article to this subgenre in your Rockies essay, uh, talking about what Coors's effect is on home runs and and pitching, and whether the Rockies can succeed there, uh, and whether the ballpark affects talent, or whether talent is important there. Uh, can you sort of go through? the study that you did and explain your findings? No, I can't, Ben. Sorry. Uh, I should have <laughs> asked before we had you on if you could do that. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. Um, but uh, yeah, it is kind of a subgenre of, uh, of, of people trying to figure out what do we do with Coors because it's just such a it's just such an outlier park. It, it, it always has been. And even, I mean, we've been doing the humidor thing for what, 10 years at this point, And it's still kind of, it's that, you know, that place where ERAs go to die. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing. Well, I, I said, okay, we kind of know, you know, at Coors you get, oh, I don't know, 83% more home runs hit than, uh, than normal. And I said, okay, well, you can't you can't just kind of always blame the ballpark. You got to be able to figure out okay, well, what what could they possibly do? And I think the Rockies have tried. You know, let's find ground ball guys. Let's see if we can guy, find guys who strike people out. Um, kind of the Ubaldo Jimenez uh, sort uh, from from back in the day. And you know, maybe we keep the ball if it doesn't if it goes on the ground, it's hard for it to fly over the fence. And they've tried that. They've tried some other things. Well, I said okay, well, you know. Yes, it, it sucks to play in Coors, but um, the other team has to as well. And let's see what we can we can come up with. So I said, all right, what's what's a park effect really? And it's we usually do it in terms of um, how how much it affects overall seasonal stats. And we want to say, uh, you know, if if uh, if this guy pitched in a, a sane ballpark, we would just kind of subtract 83% from his numbers, and that would be his uh, um, his 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 stat line. And, and that's kind of cool. You know, that has its place. And sometimes that's the question that we want to know. But I, I had a different one. I said, okay, is it really what, – what is a park effect? Is it that um, the park is doing something or is it um, that, you know, the talent just hasn't been good enough? And so I came up with this weird thought experiment, and I encourage everybody to go buy the annual and read uh, my weird thought experiment, which involves Jim Morrison and Robin Thicke within about two sentences of each other. And um, 
but I, I conceptualized it like this, and I said, all right, let's say that uh, that Jim Morrison just faked his own death in 1971 and concentrated on building a a home run uh, making machine in the it was this big magnet in the middle of center field out in Coors Field, which of course didn't exist in 1971, um, and uh, nor did the uh, the Colorado Rockies, mm. um, but uh, he was out there just kind of knowing that this would happen, and let's say that uh, you know innocent little pop fly and he flips the magnet switch and it suddenly turns into this home run and everybody kind of goes, Oh, that's kind of weird, but you know, whatever it's people, people just kind of uh, let it go. Well, obviously that's the ballpark having an effect. Um, But if he does that at, you know, kind of a league average rate, we kind of go, Oh, that's, you know, we would say there's no park effect. Well, of course the park effect so I, I ran it uh, I ran it like that and I said all right what's the effect of talent on home runs allowed at Coors so I said okay what's what's everybody's stat line outside of Coors and then did some you know gory math and numerical gymnastics and I lined up everybody's uh, um, everybody's performance at Coors and then I did it for the other 28 of the other 30 parks um, excepting Marlins Park and Target Field which hadn't been open long enough. And I said, okay, well, what's kind of when we when we pull apart, here's what we would expect just kind of based on talent, um, based on, okay, you know, it's sea level. This is what the Rockies pitchers normally do, and this is what the hitters that they normally face do. And how well does that predict what happens at Coors? And it turns out it's actually the – Coors is the, the – uh, uh, the field where talent plays up the third best. And I think it was uh, Newbush Stadium and, and – uh, um, AT&T Park were the other the, the two above it mm-hmm. and I came to the conclusion I said okay you know your your baseline rate of home runs might be different at, at Coors and, and of course much bigger but the range which you can kind of push it one way or the other is also a lot bigger and so talent kind of becomes that much more important in Coors and yet, as you point out in your essay, uh, it is probably harder for the Rockies to attract that talent to cores because of the superficial effects on ERA, and that puts them in not not the most enviable position. Well, even in you know, even with the um, the superficial effects, I mean, there's that. I think that there's more understanding of those effects now and people aren't just kind of looking at it and going oh it's a five run you know a five era he's awful and people are willing to make that connection oh he did pitch in coors but even just the psychological effects of you know oh god i just gave up my third home run today <laughs> and you know i mean there who really wants to take that kind of a beating when you can just sign with the padres and go to petco and 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 never ever ever give up any home runs you know mm-hmm um, so, I mean, there's been, well, so would you say that the, the ground ball strategy, which we've seen them pursue and they've continued to do this off season, bringing in people like Brett Anderson is, I mean, is that, uh, obviously it hasn't helped them be a good pitching team, but would they have been worse without it? Is it still a smart thing to do? It's a reasonable strategy. I mean, part of one one thing that does happen, though, is that you know a lot of those guys use movement and and breaking stuff to to try and get ground balls, and you know the ball just kind of breaks less in the thin air. That's one of the things that that happens. So, um, you know, I mean, given the limitations of their park, it's a reasonable 
strategy to do, but I, I think there's even limits to how much benefit they can derive from that um, based on, on what they have uh, what they have to work with. So, so Russell, um, imagine there's three pitchers, and mm-hmm. one of them is a true talent one-war uh, mm-hmm. warp player, one is a true talent two-warp player, and one is a, a true talent three-warp player. Um, and for 29 teams, that's what you're you're basically getting. You're getting a one, a two, or a three, right. and you know how to value those guys. Well, so if if talent, if the if the um, if the effect of actual talent plays up or plays down further in Coors Field, that essentially Colorado gets uh, better performances out of good pitchers than other parks do, and worse performances out of bad pitchers than other parks do. Then, then is it fair to say that the one, two, and three guys essentially become maybe zero, two, and four guys, and that Colorado needs to sort of price uh, uh, price wins differently for pitchers than everybody else does, and and really maybe the Hampton Nagel season, which <laughs> turned out so disastrously, and, and which seems to have sent Colorado away from that strategy ever since, might actually be the right strategy, spending more to get top pitchers, no matter how you have to do it? Maybe. I mean, if you think of, you know, I, I didn't do it in terms of war. I did it in terms of uh, just home runs per plate appearance. But kind of going on that general line, Colorado's going to get more bang for the buck out of that kind of talent. It's just that everyone will will see the raw numbers and, and, and kind of freak out over them, and it won't look like it, which is, you know, going to be frustrating for a guy who's sitting there going, you know, I could, I, you know, I, 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 I know I have more talent than the stat line shows. I and I, you know, if I were, you know, look at my road splits, I can prove it. You know, the 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 analogy that I used in the essay was, you know, let's suppose that you had a guy who, no matter, or you had a park where no matter what, just two percent of fly balls are just going to fly out, and it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, whether you're, whether you're Clayton Kershaw or whether you're me, um, it's just two percent is going to happen. And then let's say you have a park where, on average, about five percent of fly balls go for a home run um but if you're clayton kershaw you can knock it down to three and if you're me it's going to be seven or eight you know it doesn't matter what you do you're always going to have a a higher home run rate at cores but you can see that you know just within that context it's just that much more valuable for uh for the rockies to uh, to find good talented pitchers um, because that you can drive down within that that range and around that mean you can drive the um, your expected performance down a little bit further. Uh, so there have been over the years various studies that try to pinpoint types of players who would benefit disproportionately or who would who would uh, be impaired less significantly than other types of players at Coors Field and. Mm-hmm. And you said in your essay that, you know, pitchers with high strikeout rates might be disproportionately better there because not allowing contact is a really good thing in Coors Field. Um, that seems like something that maybe is not particularly easy f- to take advantage of in that pitchers with high strikeout rates are are valued pretty highly by everyone. Uh-huh. Um, there have been studies, you know, Sam recently revisited a, a Nate Silver study that suggested that maybe batters with high strikeout rates would benefit from from Colorado. And uh, we had a study not too long ago at BP by Dan Rosenson where he looked at which pitch types work best at Coors Field and are affected most and least by the, the decrease in movement. And so when the Rockies got Drew Stubbs, I speculated 
you know, he's had a lot of trouble hitting curveballs. And Dan's research suggests that curveballs are really affected disproportionately at cores. They don't curve as much. So maybe he goes there and suddenly he is able to hit curveballs and that sort of thing. So do you think there are advantages or ways that the Rockies could leverage the ballpark? Or is it all just sort of fighting a, a holding action against this ballpark that has it out for them? Well, I mean, you have to, I think that we have to consider what the actual question is. I mean, the, the Rockies play 81 games at Coors. This is well documented, but they also have the advantage of playing 81 games against teams who are also playing at Coors. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, you know, during that game, you're going to get a lot of, you know, 12 to eight uh, games or at least more than your average ballpark. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, and they can, but that's that's the the lot that's the hand that they're dealt. Um, so yeah, they could leverage the park in that talent's going to play up better. Strikeouts actually make things a little bit better. Um, it's another thing I found in the essay, and 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 others have uh, have uh, corroborated that. Um, but uh, you know maybe it's instead of you know going oh woe is us, maybe they say well you know instead of thinking about you know what would he look at in a in a normal park. Um, you, you just accept the fact that you play 81 games in that park and and move from there. I mean, I think the the leverage that they, I, I don't know that they can fully leverage um, beyond the you know ground ball and strikeout thing, um, which everybody's you know would be happy to have. Right. Um, I think that it would just be more a matter of you know let's let's accept what we have and and understand the question in the correct way rather than you know trying to do some um, abstraction of this neutral park that doesn't really exist. Yeah, I mean, after after playing there for for two decades now, I, it's probably time to to ex- accept it and move on. I mean, maybe they they have. I'm sure they've been looking into all of these things, uh, along with the rest of the sabermetric community. Um, oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so right now, the um, the typical Rockies fan has. You know, little to look forward to this year, probably, and has focused most of his or her attention on Jonathan Gray and Eddie Butler, who, I don't know, they might be the best one-two pitching prospect tandem in baseball. Um, Both Dynamite, both, um, you know, are going to be there, uh, you know, ready maybe by the end of this year. Um, And so given what you found about the effects of Coors Field on, you know, pitching, um, should... Rockies fans feel a sense of dread. I mean, I feel a sense of dread anytime I think about a pitching prospect in Colorado. And you're basically finding that, well, no, talent wins out. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, there is a path toward uh, fulfillment for pitchers that, um, while not perfectly linear, often does involve struggles. And so should we be worried about what it does to a young pitcher, even a young elite pitcher, who comes up and might be the one pitcher for a couple of years and is getting just destroyed before, you know, before his true talent can play up is, I mean, I guess what I'm basically asking is, are these two guys doomed or, <laughs> uh, or is there reason for optimism? Well, okay. One thing before we get into, you know, Gray and Butler, Gray and Butler are coming, Gray and Butler are coming. Butler was in double A last year, Gray pitched in, in high A. So let's not, uh, let's not think that we've got a, you know, oh, look, we've got our one, two for the next uh, five years. Um, 
you know, let's there, there's plenty of guys who get to AAA and suddenly it all falls apart. You know, whether they're playing, no matter where they're playing, basically. Um, and you know, let's uh, let's see what they do in, in in I presume in in AA and AAA next year. Um, but you know, to to go toward the question. <sighs> I wonder if, if some of that effect isn't just psychological where, you know, you've been taught your whole life to, um, to value, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to throw a shutout or I'm going to, you know, um, get everybody out, or at least I'm not going to give up a home run. And, you know, now really the only thing that, that protects you from, um, kind of getting really down on yourself when you see your third ball fly over the fence is going, oh, it's Coors. And now you're kind of you're stuck in this place where you're oh, I'm, now I'm blaming the ballpark and and I can imagine all kinds of conflicting emotions that come up from that. And, you know, I, I wonder if that's more what does Colorado pitchers in than anything is that, um, oh, God, why am I blaming the ballpark? I should really be able to handle this. And, you know, that dynamic coming up and maybe it's, you know, a mind game gets in your head and go and you um Maybe that's kind of the course field hangover. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the other hangover effect that people have proposed and I think looked into is is the idea that because you're playing at altitude, you know, Rockies players will physically adjust to playing at altitude, whereas players who are visiting from sea level ballparks will have to adjust to that and maybe not be at their best. Uh, but then there's also been the suggestion that. Rockies hitters having to go to and from cores all the time and adjust to how the ball moves differently, um, that that there's some hangover effect for them there. And that leads me to ask about Dexter Fowler. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, because I'm just curious what you think about that, that move, that trade, uh, but also is it fair to look at a Rockies home road splits uh, and use that as evidence that he will not produce away from cores when we're talking about a guy like Fowler who has a OPS split of almost 200 points career home and away. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever really, really dug into that. And I mean, Fowler's just, he's kind of, you know, you, you okay. You know, we go back to the old park adjustment and you kind of um, rated a cores and you get into small sample size issues and what's the issue or what's uh what is his true talent at sea level? And yeah, he's got that split. Um, but you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, realistically what it, course field will, will make a fly ball go further. Just there's less air. There's, it's easier to, for the ball to sail through the air, even now with the humidor. Um, I have to wonder if that's just kind of small sample size stuff, but um, the thing with splits is they get so weird. I mean, if it might just be that Dexter Fowler doesn't like hotel rooms and, you know, I mean, maybe he's just, he, he wants to go get comfortable somewhere and he, he likes, he likes his home cooking. I, I remember, um, I did a, a, a study on home field advantage a couple of years ago and came to the conclusion that, you know, really what seems to drive a lot of home field advantage is just familiarity with the park. You see that with, guys who are traded away from a team and then the next year when they come back, they actually hit like they're um, hit, like they have a home field advantage. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it's, it's hard to pin down that, Oh, you know, Fowler was just kind of getting lucky at altitude or that he needs the, the thin air. Um, you know, I remember when I saw that move, I kind of went, what, huh? 
and you know for what Jordan Lyle and Brandon Barnes or and it's kind of like oh well, why what what was what was the thought process behind that and I mm-hmm. um, that one was a head scratcher for me because you know it was kind of Dexter Fowler was put up as like third or fourth straight year of um, you know just kind of that uh, that 360 on base that that is really nice to have and I I didn't quite get it. It does. I mean, it does. Those seem like if this were any other park, you would you wouldn't pay that much attention to the home road splits. You just assume yeah. it's going to wash out. But I mean, we have identified that Coors Field has an effect on certain players more than other players. I mean, that's not that's not a particularly controversial thing, right? I mean, we've identified there are certain pitches that uh, that don't work the same way. There are certain skills that aren't quite as valuable. And it's a completely different sized park, and it does completely different things to different people. So it seems like in this one case, it, the most reasonable hypothesis is that the weird freak show playing environment that's causing freak show splits is probably a factor, right? Well, it's a reasonable hypothesis, but I don't think that I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put money on it. Frankly, I there there are just so many other variables to. Uh, to think about and i mean it's one of those things where um you know maybe the only one who would really know that the answer to that would be dexter fowler and you know maybe he just uh maybe it's something about the color purple uh that that uh that makes him so happy that he or that uh the the dinosaur thing that they have for the the mascot maybe he loves the mascot i don't know he doesn't like um, it no it's, he does not love the mascot uh, <laughs> it's not it wor- nobody nobody is doing better because they love dinger that it, never it, it was stolen from the <laughs> the props department at barney if i'm not mistaken but um but uh, yeah i mean it's it, it it, it is tempting to just say, oh, Coors Field is, is, is this big thing. But, you know, you can't blame everything that happens on Coors Field. There's there's just other stuff that goes on. And, I mean, it's a reasonable hypothesis to say it's all Coors, but it's also reasonable to say, hey, maybe there's something else going on. So whether it's because of the ballpark or not, uh, the Rockies over the years have – have been they've done some some creative things if you want to put a positive <laughs> spin on it or mm-hmm. some some strange things uh, some innovative things perhaps uh, whether it's the four man rotation experiment and mm-hmm. and strict pitch counts or lefty closers or uh, most recently the the, the co GM arrangement and the sort of similar uh, affiliate supervisor system that they set up in the minor leagues. Um, I'm I'm curious about your I, I guess your psych- psychological perspective or take on on the co GM arrangement both both the idea of of splitting that job into two people and and giving the enormous job of running a team to two people which sort of would seem to make sense in that they could each focus on on certain things and devote more of their time to it but then also have to come up with some coherent vision for the team and work toward it together. And then also the aspect of Bill Guyvet with the desk and the clubhouse uh, and sort of just being there day to day in the same environment that the players are, which is something that often we hear is is kind of a no-no. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the co-GM thing, when you think about it, it sounds like it sounds like a marriage, honestly. It's you know, it's two people trying to work together for, toward a common goal, and 
And, you know, that that can go wonderfully great. That can go horribly wrong. And, you know, either uh, – um, so, I, you know, I wouldn't I, – I get the idea of, you know, we'll split this job into two pieces. You focus on what you're good at. I'll focus on what I'm good at. And, uh, you know, that would be um, – I think it's a reasonable way to do it. I think now, like a marriage, it's going to depend on communication. It's going to depend on how – uh, how well the the, the two guys complement each other, and that could work. I, I just because it's weird, and just because we have this idea that the GM should be the sole person in charge and should be the the, the one person who's who's got all the power. Um, just because it weird, it's weird doesn't mean it won't work. Um, but you know, as far as the guy or Bill Gavett uh, in the um, in the clubhouse, um, you know, now we kind of extend this. Uh, uh, the the marriage metaphor into a family and um, you know it's kind of a it, it's it's kind of like you know your dad hanging out with you and your friends um, because you know he's physically there you know there's um, there as a psychologist there's uh, a certain uh, brand of family therapy where what you do is you look at a family uh, we call it a family diagram. And you say, all right, where are the, you know, who are the, who are the, um, uh, who are the alliances here, and where are the boundaries between them? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you want them to be able to all work together and all come together, but you know, I mean, as, as a dad of three kids, you know, it's me and my wife against the three kids sometimes, and that's actually kind of a healthy thing because, you know, we are not the kids, we are not able to. Um, you know, as they get older, we are not their friends. We are their parents, and there's times we got to play bad cop on that. And I can imagine that you know, it's it's kind of a, a personal space violation in that you know he's there in the clubhouse, and you know, if even if you don't want to do the family thing, it's kind of like your boss is just kind of right down the hall, mm-hmm. and you know, he is the guy who decides whether you go to AAA or whether you're being traded or whether we're just going to outright or you know put you on waivers for the purpose of giving your unconditional release. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that could make people weirded out. Um, you know, I'm wondering if there's some other way that they he kind of maintains distance, either physically or psychologically, um, that allows that that little bit of separation that people need in that sort of a, a relationship to be there. And you know, if you get that wrong, it can just be kind of creepy. <laughs> um, so, uh, where do you see this team sort of on the, in the the competitive? cycle uh, because as you mentioned that the Fowler move seemed like sort of a, a head scratcher didn't really seem like a, a win now move necessarily but some of the other things they did uh, you know like bringing in Brett Anderson or signing Justin Morneau seemed like things that were more 2014 oriented and and they have a couple superstars who are sort of in their prime right now so is this a is this a rebuilding team is this a contending right now team is it sort of in the middle somewhere they're so 2000 and late i mean that's basically what it comes down to i mean it's 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 weird because you know they have troy tulowitzki fantastic shortstop uh one of you know do we call him best shortstop in the game you know whatever you want to but you know obviously star level player cargo fantastic player um and nolan arenado can Field the heck out of third base. Let's hope he can hit at some point. Will and Rosario, catcher with pop, 
wonderful. And you start to see the, you kind of see what what they're going for, and and you see where, you know, if this team had a couple of pitchers, Grand Butler, Grand Butler, Grand Butler, um, if they had a couple of pitchers, you could see this team kind of creeping up on, oh, you know, one more move, and we've got, we've got something on our hands. Um, but you know, then there's, this is also a team that employs DJ LeMahieu and and Josh Rutledge to play second base, and. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I get the Morneau signing and it was kind of, but it's kind of treading water on what Todd Helton was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then, and the rumor was that they traded Dexter Fowler so that they could clear the space for, for Morneau. And so, you know, it, it kind of feels like a team that was, you know, kind of treading water to begin with is, is just kind of still stuck in that middle space and, and hoping that, um, some pitching magically appears. Mm-hmm. Uh, so given that, what would you predict for this season? Oh, you know, here, I'm going to, here's the thing is, is that one of the reasons I went and I did, um, a, a gory math on Coors Field was that the Rockies just really weren't all that interesting to watch last year. They were a middling team and it just wasn't clearly going anywhere. And they won what 74 games. So this year I'll say, you know, they, they do a little better, but they win 79 games and, you know, just enough that you kind of go, Oh, you know, if we had just turned that sweep into a, uh, into a, uh, that we got swept into a sweep that we did, you know, we would have had a winning record and, but frankly, 82 wins isn't going to get you anywhere. And you just kind of go, well, you know, where's the story here? It's not like you can kind of go, um, Oh, you know, it's awesome um, to watch them do a total rebuild like the Astros or, you know, they're awesome and they might actually go to the playoffs. They're just kind of just stuck there and it's, it's no fun. <laughs> well, if you're a bored Rockies fan, you can just entertain yourself by reading sabermetric analyses of the course field effect uh, and pass the time that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you as always for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me again. Uh, and uh, please go to baseballreference.com, support our sponsor, uh, sign up for the play index, and use the coupon code BP for a $6 discount on the one year subscription. Uh, tomorrow is our listener email show, so please send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com so that we will have something to talk about. And now Nick will talk to Troy Rank from the Denver Post. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm speaking with Troy Rink of the Denver Post. How's it going, Troy? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. So the Rockies won 74 games last year, improving on their 64-win season the year before. They were unable to bring themselves out of last place in the NL West, however. This offseason, they've made some notable moves, trading Dexter Fowler to Houston, signing Justin Morneau and the 41-year-old LaTroy Hawkins, then trading for Drew Stubbs and Franklin Morales. The Dodgers are looking like an excellent team this year, definitely heads and shoulders above the rest of the division. That leaves the Rockies in a mix of teams that are relatively close to each other. The Giants will be looking to bounce back after a down year. The Diamondbacks were aggressive this offseason, and the Padres have a better roster than most people would expect. What have the Rockies' goals been this offseason? Have they discussed any sort of overarching strategy? Well, improving the bullpen was a priority. They got, you know, they signed Boone Logan to a three-year, $16.5 million deal. That's the richest uh, free agent contract they've ever given a reliever. 
so that was a big move for them. They signed Hawkins, as you mentioned. He'll close some, likely do some uh, setup uh, role as well. Uh, and a leader, a guy who's pitched in altitude in 07 on their World Series team, their only World Series team. Uh, so their strategy was get a deeper bullpen, deeper bench in, in terms of Drew Stubbs and Brandon Barnes, have more depth, and also uh, replace Todd Helton, and, and that was the Justin Morneau move. But for me, the biggest move they made was Brett Anderson. In talking to multiple executives over the last few days, it sounds like there was probably 15 teams in on Anderson, and they a lot of people like that move for them. So if he bounces back, I think they'll be a lot better. Last year, the Rockies' rotation did a really great job of avoiding homers. They were third in the league in ground ball in ground ball rate. That helped them finish fifth in home runs per nine innings. However, they were 29th in strikeout rate. They had a lot of trouble stranding guys on the bases. The Twins and Astros, their rotations both struggled to strike guys out and to strand runners. Was the lack of swing and miss stuff the biggest problem in the Rockies' rotation last year? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy because they want sinker ball guys. They want the ball on the ground. They feel yeah. like their defense is one of their biggest strengths. But as you mentioned, when the ball's in play consistently, you're going to give up more hits. Where it really hurt them was their relief core. Matt Belisle and, and Wilton Lopez specifically, guys who came into leverage situations and struggled giving up you know, hits on whether it was ground balls or whatever, that hurt them. They liked Elise Shasheen, the way he pitches. He's become almost a true sinker ball guy. That's why they went out and got Anderson. But to your point, they don't have strikeout stuff. So there's going to be some, an element of luck involved on nights when the ground balls find the holes. And they do have more power, though, in the back end. So I guess in their strategy, it would be sinker ball starters, sinker slider guys, and then in the bullpen, they have guys that can punch people out, specifically in Rex Brothers and this Chad Bettis kid they're grooming. They're trying to get more power in the back end of the bullpen to complement a staff of, they're building essentially a staff of sinker ball slider guys. Definitely between Bettis and Eddie Butler and Jonathan Gray, they have some guys who uh, might be more strikeout, uh, more strikeout guys in the future. Which of those guys do you think will see the most playing time this year? Well, Eddie Butler will be uh, between Eddie Butler and John Gray. Eddie Butler's got a chance to be in the rotation, and for me, uh, near in July and maybe even sooner. It just depends on how the fifth starter role is going, but Butler's a little ahead of Gray. I expect Gray to make his debut. He's more likely late August, early September. In an ideal world, Butler and Gray would give them the lift that Obaldo Jimenez and Franklin Morales did in 07. Bettis has been is exclusively trying out for the bullpen this spring after starting much of last season. Uh, they like his power there. They feel like, you know, we talked to Walt Weiss about that uh, recently, that his motor, the way he's built, he's more built for the sprint than the marathon. And so Bettis is a power guy, and he should be able to throw 95 if he's throwing one inning. And I Bettis has, if the three we're talking about, Bettis will be up with the team at some point, whether that's April or May. Will he break camp? I don't know about that. He might need someone to be ineffective, and he'd be the first man up in the bullpen. So Bettis and Morales should spend the whole year in the bullpen, you think? Yeah, Morales is competing for the fifth job. I mean, Juan Nicasio is the slight favorite for the fifth job. For me, Nicasio should be in the bullpen. He profiles so much better as a reliever. Throws 95 miles per hour. He's really a two-pitch guy. He's struggled to have any three-pitch consistency throughout his career. But if he struggles, maybe Morales starts and then Nicasio goes to the pen. But... They go through relievers. So, so, you know, if Adovino, for instance, is ineffective, Bettis would be the first guy. You know, I mean, Bettis is going to get in there somehow, some way. It just may not be to start the season. 
you've mentioned their great defense a couple times. Uh, Nolan Arenado was very impressive at third base in his debut season. He helped turn all those ground balls uh, induced by the Rockies staff into lots of outs, especially playing next to Troy Tulowitzki. His bat wasn't quite there. He wasn't able to hit for the same type of power that he showed in the minors. His biggest flaw was his plate, plate discipline. He was fifth in all of baseball in chasing pitches outside of the zone. He has good enough contact, kill, uh, contact skills to avoid strikeouts, but all those swings at bad pitches have prevented him from uh, getting walks and getting good pitches to drive. He had a better second half than his first half, but a lot of that was driven by his batting average on balls in play. Uh, his walks decreased a little bit, his strikeouts increased a little bit, and he hit for less power. So are the Rockies confident in his ability to make the right adjustments at the plate, or are they really just banking on his defense being top of the line? No, you raise a great point. I mean, the reason he was going to be in the big leagues uh, quickly in a couple of years ago was his bat. He's a yeah. middle-of-the-order bat. He was hitting cleanup, and it's shown a, a knack for you know being a run producer. Uh, um, he, and that's what I thought would get him there. His glove was always good, but no one was saying, oh, this guy's going to make history and be the first rookie uh, third baseman in the National League to win a gold glove. And his glove was uh, is as good as Tulo was in 07. I mean, as a rookie season, I, I mean, it was yeah. just off the charts. Scott Rowland with a little less athleticism. I mean, it was unbelievable what he did. But, yes, to your point, he's got to weigh 220 pounds. He can't be hitting 12 home runs. They need more power from him. And... There's a couple of theories. One, better pitch, like, you know, pitch selection, cross discipline. I mean, making stop getting himself out as much. That's that's always part of it, the growth with a, a good young player. You know, that they make that adjustment, understand how they're being pitched uh, better their second, third season. And the power is kind of the latest thing to come, or the last thing to come at the major league level. And I talked to one of the guys that knows his swing really well. He feels like he's just going to hit mistake a few more mistakes out, and he'll be able to get to 20 that way. Because I feel like Nolan should have a little more lift in his swing. Swings down for me. Swings down on the ball a little too much, given his size. I'd like to see the swing path. We have a little more lift to it, because he, he's a strong kid. I mean, he's a big, strong kid. Mm-hmm. But pitch. He's a he's a baseball lifer, and that's like this is a kid that's you know I've coached this in youth baseball. This I know since six years old he's been on every travel team and traveled the country. This is what he does. It's his passion. It's his life in every way. So more than most guys, I feel like he will make the adjustment because he cares. He understands why he failed, and physically he has the tools to make the adjustment. And again, it's on him. But more than some young players I've covered. He understands where he he failed, and he's trying to address that, not hoping that it just it'll be different because he's not that guy. One guy I found that was an interesting comp to Arenado at the plate, at least, is uh, Pablo Sandoval, who is right at the top of the list of guys who swing and uh, chase a lot of pitches outside of the zone. But similar to Arenado, he has a pretty low strikeout rate considering he chases so many pitches. Sandoval's power has been really inconsistent over his career, but his walk rate has been pretty consistent, right around 8%. Do you think Arenado can get that walk rate up a bit and be able to get on base more? That's a great question, and I get asked that a lot about young guys becoming more patient. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to be patience as much as with Nolan understanding how he's being pitched. Because yeah. For me, to change a guy the way he hits, if he's an aggressive hitter and he's a he's a free swinger, that's really hard for them to say change that at the big league level when they're facing the best pitching they've ever seen in their life. Now try a new strategy. Uh, but in Nolan's case, just under having a better understanding of how he's being attacked, 
should lead to some uptick in walks. Will he get to the desirable level? I don't know about that. And I, I could live with that, as you and I have talked about it, we just you get more power. Yeah. I mean, if you have the, the walk rate stays down, it's fine, but you can't have low walk rate and you know minimal power as it relates to his position. So can you get him to 20 to 25 home runs? His body type suggests he should hit that many. And that could be this year. And again, he in the minors, he was known more for his hitting than his fielding. He's always a good fielder, but he was going to reach the big leagues because of his hitting. So I think the, the walk rate will go up slightly, but probably not to the levels that people would like. Carlos Gonzalez started last year off with some MP, MVP numbers. He finished the first half third in slugging percentage while being a top base runner. Unfortunately, he missed most of the second half due to a sprain in his right middle finger. How are the reports on him sounding going into camp? Well, he elected to not have the surgery mm-hmm. on the finger. He did not swing a bat from the end of the season until December 1st. Everything's gone fine, but one key will be, is, is it's going to be in stages here, but how will it respond to facing uh, live BP? Because he admitted it's so much different hitting BP and hitting live BP off the pitcher throwing 95. Yeah. And so far, no problems. But it is an issue because it wasn't surgically repaired. And the reason he avoided surgery or elected not to have it was because he was told by the doctors, he went to multiple specialists, that there's no guarantee the flexibility in that finger would ever come back fully. So that kind of scared him that let's try no surgery. He has slightly adjusted how he holds the bat. His finger isn't all the way over the knob like it used to be. He kind of moved up slightly in his grip to ease some of the pressure in the finger, but he's not changing his grip dramatically because he feels, A, he's uncomfortable, and B, that it would compromise his power. But when that guy, when he's healthy, he's the best player I've covered since Larry Walker, and he can do anything he wants on certain nights. He has that ability to take over a game, whether it's base running, outfield defense, uh, power. I mean, he does things that no one else on their team can do, even Tulowitzki, because Tulo doesn't run like Cargo. So it sounds like he'll be very important to watch during spring training this year. Yeah, they don't even know what position he's going to play. I mean, he's slated, slated, he's slated to play center field to replace Fowler, but in their ideal world, privately, they would prefer to keep him in left and have Drew Stubbs and Charlie Blackman platoon in center. Uh, but that's going to be on Blackman and Stubbs. It's not whether Cargo can play center. They know he can play center. He can play left. It's the issue of the demand of playing center, getting him in on his legs. They would they would prefer to have a platoon in center rather than left. And you know we may not know until the opening day or last week of spring if they're going to go that direction. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Stubbs and and Blackman. Is is Brandon Barnes going to be considered in center field? He's played some good defense out there in the past. I see him. Yes, he is, but he would be, for me, a, a true reserve outfielder. Uh-huh. So he'd be like the fifth guy. The guy that could get the you know, raw deal and all this would be Corey Dickerson, a guy I love the way he competes, and I do think he has a brighter future than most uh, anticipate. But if Dickerson, Dickerson is a converted infielder, he can't play center field at Coors Field. That's not realistic. Uh, so they could have an outfield, starting outfield, let's say, of Kadir in right, Stubbs in center, Cargo in left, and then you'd have uh, Blackman and Barnes as your two bench players with Dickerson as the first man up in AAA. So is Kadire definitely going to get a full season of playing time over and right? Well, he's going to play first. I would, you know, they don't, they're very sensitive to this and don't want to say it because they certainly don't want Marneau to think he's a platoon player, uh-huh. even though the splits may ultimately suggest it by the end of the year. But against tough, tougher lefties, Kadire's going to play first and or Willene Rosario, their catcher. 
because uh, Justin Morneau's splits against lefties the last three years suggest that running him out against Kershaw, Patrick Corbin, Wade Miley, Madison Bumgarner is probably not their best lineup. Yeah, it's, there's some tough stadiums for a lefty to hit in as well in that division. Oh yeah, especially especially L.A., San Francisco, San Diego. Those <laughs> those are tough. San Francisco is the toughest one I've ever seen on lefties. I mean, it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's lucky. I guess he's lucky that the majority of his games will be played in cores. Correct, and he, that's where I'm saying against the middle of the road lefty, I could see him starting at home. I yeah. just on the road, especially Kershaw. Bumgarner, I mean, those in their best lineup by the numbers wouldn't be him starting. It would be him coming in as a pinch hitter and have Kadir or Rosario at first base. Yeah, so if they put if they put Kadir at first, and they have a little more flexibility for the outfielders because you've talked you've talked about a bunch of different outfielders between Blackman and Dickerson and Stubbs and obviously Gonzalez and then Barnes. Yeah, they've got options this year they didn't have. They they have realistic major league depth. Where last year when Fowler got hurt. The, the timing was awful because they had just designated Eric Young Jr. for assignment, ultimately trading him to the Mets. And Tyler Colvin was in a, he was a human otter pop. He could not hit. He was, he's streaky. But man, when they gave him an opportunity, they needed some offense. He was awful. And he went on the death spiral and he didn't contribute at all last year. And the year before, he was one of their better players. But, and Corey Dickerson did contribute, but his playing time was sporadic, and he'd always been an everyday guy, but now he's got some experience. Barnes, as you mentioned, is a, has played a lot the last few years, albeit on a terrible team with the Astros. Mm-hmm. And Stubbs has real potential. If you use Stubbs the right way and platoon him the right way and hit him seventh or eighth, he's a useful piece. Now, if you lead him off and he's leading the world in strikeouts, you don't like it. But if you're able to platoon him and, and take advantage of matchups, I think Stubbs can be a very useful player for them, especially at Coors Field. Definitely. Um, you mentioned the Dexter Fowler trade. What was the reasoning behind that? Was it really just looking at their outfield depth and thinking that uh, they would be able to get on without him? Well, there's a couple things. He started. He's, he was starting to make real money this year, oh, $6 yeah. million plus. And his last year, he, he just has never turned the corner. He's always been on that intersection of stardom, and he's going. This is the year, and he, he last April he hit what nine home runs. I mean, he was heading to the All Star game. He was going to be a guy they build around, and then he got hurt, and his year fizzled. And there, there's no question, his home road splits has been have been as dramatic as anybody on their team the last three four years. And so he was an old school Coors Field player, and that he would hit 400 at home with a 440 on base. And he was Willie Mays at times, and then go on the road and hit 180 with a 285 to 300 on base and not steal bases. So, first, so so to answer your question, they needed to get more pitching depth. So he was a piece they were going to use, and they turned around and used the money that he was going to make to give them or no. You know, they're going to miss Fowler defensively, and they'll miss him at home offensively. On the road, he was never able to gain consistency, and I, I hope he does. He's a good kid. I hope it works out for him, but he just never showed them enough that he should be a core guy to build around. He got close a couple of times, but he just never showed enough to them that he could be a core guy. So there were some rumors this, earlier this winter, definitely rumors, of the Rockies discussing a Troy Tulowitzki trade with the Cardinals. The Rockies would obviously be looking for an immense return on him as he's owed thir- uh, just $134 million over the next seven seasons, yet he's pretty much as valuable as the $240 million man, Robinson Cano, who doesn't offer quite the same value on a per-game basis, but has been healthier than Tulo. 
would the Rockies even consider trading Tulowitzki? Is there some price that would that, that would bring them to the table? Yeah, there's no question, and the, the Cardinal stuff was real. That wasn't yeah. just rumors. There were talks. I mean, it never got close, but the reality is Cardinals have the prospects to make it happen, and the Rockies would be looking for a combination of pitchers and hitters. Everyone says, well, they just get four top pitchers. That that trade has proven to be awful for the Rockies. When you look at back to Obaldo Menez's deal with Pomeranz and White, if any deal would have been, let's say, hypothetically, Shelby Miller, Matt Adams, one of the one of their other outfielders, whether if they could have got Oscar Tavares, I don't know they could, but so two two position players, a legitimate starter, and then maybe another arm they throw in, and so the Cardinals could do that without killing their own farm system because they develop like crazy, and secondly, they could have taken on the contract. Obviously, the next rumor that will be attached to Tulo until the Yankees have Derek Jeter's replacement is will he go to New York? The problem with New York is their farm system, as you know, is. I'm sure you know it's not rich, and yeah. they couldn't even put together a deal for Abaldo a couple years ago yeah. when their main piece was Jesus Montero. So I don't know if they could do it without a third team. But it's that rumor is not going to go away until there's a replacement for Jeter. And the same thing with the Cardinals; it didn't go away until they signed Johnny Peralta. Exactly. So the Rockies made a nice ten-game improvement last year. Pakoda projects them to win about 78 games um, this upcoming year. What would be considered a significant improvement for them? For me, it's 500, or it's like, you know, yeah. 81, 82. And, and they're, they're talking, their owner's talking in terms of 90 wins. And, and God bless them, it's his team. I mean, I, I, can't, I don't expect him to come out and say we're going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. It's not great for the advertising and the ticket, season ticket slogan to come by our team, we're terrible. But <laughs> they're more optimistic than most. It's always a weird thing with them because they possess Cargo and Tulo, and they're so good when they're on the field together, which has been rare the last couple of seasons. But because of those two pieces, it colors everything with this, you know, the optimism that most bad teams don't have. Yeah. And so it's like, man, if those two are healthy, and I'm as guilty as as any, is that when they're on the field, if you look it up, when they've started together, entering last year, the winning percentage was like 581. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it's probably 550 or 560. They're a playoff team when those two have started in the same lineup. Um, and so that changed. So, but realistically, they don't play a lot of games together. And if they could, and they get to 140, then they should have a winning record. What that means in September, I don't know. But if they don't, and one or two of them gets hurt, and Brett Anderson doesn't uh, fulfill his potential, they're going to be struggling to have a winning record. If Anderson's good and two on cargo are healthy, they should have a chance to play meaningful games in September for the first time since 2010. Could they become buyers later in the year if, if they see that Tulowitzki and Gonzalez have been healthy and they're in contention? Their their buying would be based on attendance. They yeah. they have if you've read the story on Montfort where their payroll is fifty percent of their revenue. So if the team's attracting fans and they're contending as they did, I would say the comparison would be in two thousand nine when they added um, Joe Bindle and Rafael Betancourt. It would be a deal mm-hmm. like that. I don't see them going out and getting like the number one starting pitcher on the market unless he was a young guy that was controllable for one more year. They are not into rental players at all. So when they go to look, it's both for the present and at least one more year. But more than likely, it would be to add a bullpen piece, that kind of trade. Not you know they're not going to be trading for the number one pitcher on the market. That's not them. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, Troy. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. Take care.
That was Troy Rink of the Denver Post. You can read Troy's writing at denverpost.com slash rink or follow him on Twitter at Troy Rink. That's R-E-N-C-K. That's it for this week on Drop Third Strike. Next week, we'll be moving into the top 20 as we discuss the Blue Jays, Royals, Diamondbacks, and Indians. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.